Mask comes off, glasses go on. I don't know how you can do them both at once. People who do, I still haven't figured that one out. Good morning. I was um, reading this about the cross of Christ being um, difficult for us. And I was just thinking that we are so used to hearing the stories of Jesus in church uh, about Christmas, about Easter, that we forget that it's a really weird story. Um, if you're talking about God sending you a savior, you don't expect a tiny baby. They can't really do anything. Especially one that's born years and years ago in a place full of animal excrement. And then that baby is visited by shepherds who no one would have wanted to have visit them. Foreigners who'd have probably made them unclean to see. And then the saviour of the world, well, we don't know anything really about what he did for the next 30 years. Disappears off to this small town, raised by poor, uneducated parents, probably working with his hands. It's not really what you expect. Then he starts this ministry where he doesn't go to Jerusalem or any of the holy cities that we would expect him to. He goes to the backwater towns of Galilee and he hangs around with those people that we probably don't want to hang around with. He hangs around with fishermen, women. He hangs around with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And then, hallelujah, he goes to Jerusalem. Things are about to start. This is going to be a great ministry. He's going to save everyone. But less than a week later, he's died. It doesn't, you're used to hearing that story, but if you think about it like that, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And rises from the dead. And who does he trust to share his message? Well, the same down and outs he's been hanging around with the whole time. And this is a time before social media. This is a time before the telephone. This is a time even before the printing press. And he's trusting poor people who've probably never traveled to share his message. The cross of Christ is an odd thing. If there was like a film now coming into box office called The Savior of the World, um, I imagine it'd be a much deeper voice, be like, The Savior of the World is coming to box office 12th of June you'd expect it to have some kind of Marvel-like superhero in that comes down and saves the world from like aliens or terrorists or something like that. And at the end of the film has hardly got any scratches on them. That's what we would expect. So if you think of it like that, it's not difficult to imagine, thanks Donal, it's not difficult to imagine what the Jews and the Greeks would have expected. They were looking for a saviour, a messiah, who would sort out their problems. So the Jews, let's take the Jews and then the Greeks, but the Jews, they had been through a lot over the last decades, years. They had been in an occupied land on and off for a long time. They had had the Babylonians, then the Persians, Alexander the Great, and now the Romans ruling their space, oppressing them. They were a little bit fed up. You'd be fed up. They wanted someone to come in on a white horse and save the day. And they knew their Bible. They knew what David did. They wanted a Goliath to come and sort out the, uh, sorry, a David to come and sort out the Goliath of the Romans. They wanted a new exodus. They wanted some miraculous signs like the, like the Red Sea parting. That's what they were looking for. And we can't really blame them. 
So a crucified Christ just didn't commute for them. It didn't make any sense. In their text, their Bible, they had looked and it said someone who dies on a tree is cursed by the law, not holy. So it was a stumbling block for them. They, they didn't see the, the miracles Jesus performed in those little towns as being big enough for them. They saw that crucified, people who followed the crucified Christ as blasphemous. To them, they didn't want a part of it because it didn't help them in the here and now. They wanted a way out of their situation now, a practical way out. Jesus' cross offered them nothing tangible now to help them. And the other people, the Greeks, or the non-Jews, because he's writing to Greece. So the non-Jews, they valued wisdom. They valued... Talk right in there. (laughs) They valued wisdom. They valued education. They valued fancy speeches and eloquent arguments and big words. That's what they wanted to hear. So they rejected Jesus straight off because what could a man who couldn't save himself from death do for them? And if you think about, if you learn, they learned anything about Jesus, that he was uneducated, they wouldn't want anything to do with that. If they'd learned that he didn't argue at his own trial, that wouldn't have made sense to them. He died the death of someone with no status at all. That was just folly. A crucified Jesus, a crucified leader, was foolishness to them. It didn't add up. But if you look in our world now, even though we're 2,000 years later, not much has changed. We still value education. We still value wisdom and power and riches. We still analyze speeches. We still say, oh, that was a good talk or when a political leader stands up, we're still analysing that. The world hasn't changed that much. We still search for those signs and wonders, those wow moments. And if we see them, we still maybe doubt where they've come from. And this is a challenging passage to anyone who lives in this world, anyone on earth. And this is a challenging passage for me. I'm going to tell you, when I first became a Christian, I desperately wanted to study more of the Bible. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I studied and I studied. I wanted to look at the words in their original language. I was rubbish at that, but I wanted to do that. I wanted to stand where Jesus stood. I wanted to travel where Paul traveled. I desperately wanted to learn more and more and more. But what I really wanted to do was become a good Christian by knowing more, not by having it here. And my motive was a bit off. And when I ended up studying theology at Cambridge, in my head, I thought, well, I've made it. I'm in the best, one of the best places in the country to study theology. But those three years, in terms of my relationship with God, were the loneliest and the most distant from God because I'd got it a little bit wrong. I rejected churches that I went to. I rejected study groups that I went to. I rejected the Christian Union because I thought my theology was too advanced for them and they didn't get it. 
But actually, I came to discover after a long time that although reading the Bible is important, I'm not telling you don't read the Bible, please don't take that from my sermon, but it doesn't make me a better person the more I know. And it doesn't make God love me any more than he already does because he already loves me as much as I could and there's nothing I can do to add to that and I still struggle with that when I don't do my daily bible study or I don't reach the impossible Christian standards that I set for myself God doesn't set for me I set for myself I still struggle with that that's my stumbling block because I'm adding stuff to the cross we don't need to add stuff So I thought it was really interesting when I got this passage to preach on because this is one that I've, that's brought me back down before. And although it did that, it's also been a massive encouragement to me. Because this unlikely thing, this crucified Messiah, also gives us so much hope in this world. Because the wisdom of God is very different from the rigid wisdom of the world and thank goodness for that it is saving it is inclusive it doesn't matter where you've come from it doesn't matter what your past was before you came to the cross it doesn't matter all the things you've done wrong and it doesn't matter if you're educated uneducated what race you are what religion you were before you came And it's really interesting that this passage was written to the Corinthians. I don't know if you know a lot about where Corinth was, so sorry if you already do. But Corinth is a ta- was a town in Greece. And it's a very important town because the ships had to go all the way around Greece. If you can picture Greece, kind of that shape with all the islands. And there was a little cut through, a canal, the Corinth Canal, that would save them the long way around. So it became an important trade place. And when you've got an important trade place, you've got a mixing pot of all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And it's also referred to as the Las Vegas of the ancient world, a number of places, which just shows you that there was some morally dubious stuff going on there as well. There was rich people and poor people. There was temples. I think there was a synagogue. There was noble people and slaves. There was Jews and there was Greeks all together. So you'd expect the Corinthian church to be a real mix of that. But interestingly, um, when Ambella was reading, it's, Paul says, not many of you were wise. So you've got the uneducated people. Not many of you were powerful or influential, I think this translation has. So they were the low. Not many of you were of noble birth. We've got the poor here. We've got a motley crew here. The low and the despised of society. But these are the ones who hadn't rejected the cross. These are the ones who had embraced it. Because God's wisdom creates this kingdom of contemptibles. There was a quote by the Roman Emperor Cicero, and he says, let me get this right, the cross speaks of that which is so shameful it should never be spoken of in polite society. So this is impolite group of Corinthians that we've got here listening to Paul's message. And it got me thinking of the group that Jesus was hanging around with. The down and outs, 
the ones that didn't really count for much. And then I thought, well, it's not just the New Testament. There's a motley crew all the way through the Bible. The contemptibles are used by God again and again. And it's so encouraging to see who God can use. And I have this list that I use a lot in um, my work. And sorry if you've heard it before, but not really sorry because I really like this. Um, so if you might have heard some of it before, um, so sorry, yeah, sorry about that, but it's so encouraging for me that I quite often use this list to encourage us all. It says, Noah was a drunk, Abraham was too old, Sarah was impatient, Isaac was a daydreamer, Jacob was a liar, people thought Leah was ugly, Joseph was abused, Miriam was a gossip, Moses had a speech impediment, Gideon was insecure, Rahab was a prostitute, Timothy was too young, David was an adulterer, it doesn't say this, but and a murderer, Samson was a womanizer, Jonah ran away from God, Thomas doubted, Martha worried, Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep when they should have been praying. The Samaritan woman was divorced, and more than once. Zacchaeus was too small, Paul was too religious, and Lazarus was dead. So I like that list because I like to use it. It's wonderful because God qualifies the people that he calls. He doesn't pick the people who are already qualified for the job. And why not? Because they don't get it. And what's more, because they've already qualified themselves with worldly stuff, they don't want to get it. And we say now, oh, it's so difficult to spread the message of the cross. The cross has been a divisive message all the way across history. It's as divisive now as it ever was because worldly wisdom doesn't like it. And it didn't even have any fairy lights on at the time. God's wisdom is different. It's love and grace that is freely given to all. And we find, that, we find it hard to accept anything for nothing, don't we? Especially us Brits. We want to give back if someone gives us something. It's really hard, and the more power and the more wisdom you've got, the harder it is. Those of, when you boast about your life, you want to boast about your education, your job, what you've got, what your children have achieved. But what if you've got nothing to boast of? Those are the people that find the biggest transformation at the foot of the cross. Because that cross is God's weakest a most powerless point. And at that point, he is infinitely wiser and stronger than anything that any man could have ever done for us. So therefore, Paul says, let's boast only in God, not of what we've achieved, but, but what God has worked through us. And if we don't boast of our own volition, then we are humbled and God is glorified through what we say. And things that are contemptible, things that are rejected, disliked, despised by the world, are welcomed, loved, and transformed as they're brought into that kingdom. And that's pretty cool. And what an amazing testimony, what amazing testimonies are going to be in that kingdom, are already in that kingdom, people who tell us how God has transformed them and used them for his glory. 
So this passage is hugely challenging for me, and it still is, but I'm going to come back to it again and again for its sheer beauty and simplicity of what Jesus did for me and for us on the cross. We don't need a fancy education. We don't need to read the Bible in Hebrew or Greek. We don't need loads of money. We don't need any of that to remind us of the power of the cross. And I can go back to my list over and over again to remind me of God's power and the fact that he can use the broken, the contemptible, the imperfect in his kingdom. And let's face it, if he didn't use the imperfect, who would he use? Because we're all imperfect in different ways. So let's just take a minute to thank God for that in prayer. Thank you, God, for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that nobody is too broken, too low, too contemptible for your love. May we boast in your name across Lark Hall, across Bath, and all the world. Lord, bring your kingdom here to us and those around us. Amen.